Since you listen to Timeless Leadership, you are likely a busy and curious professional, and you're interested in acquiring more knowledge. And in this case, Augment can give you ultra-actionable business knowledge without leaving your job or breaking the bank. They have an alternative MBA taught by the founders of Wikipedia, Shazam, Waze, YouTube, and more. And it is available to listeners of Timeless Leadership at half price. Just go to augment.org and put in the code Monty Scholarship. That's augment.org with Monty Scholarship for half off. Enroll today and join the hundreds of other students who are already using the lessons of this program to get to the next step in their careers. This is Timeless Leadership, where we explore what makes extraordinary people tick. We look for the universal truths that will help make us better versions of ourselves. Hi, welcome to Timeless Leadership. I'm Scott Monty. So glad you're back here with me. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our most recent episode, the interview with Lindsay Trevinsky, author of The Cabinet, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that because what we're going to talk about today is related to what Washington put together. As the first president, he really didn't have a blueprint from which to work. There were other sources that certainly came in, other countries, other traditions, but he knew he had an opportunity to set down a new path, to pave the road behind him, as we used to say in my social media days at Ford Motor Company. And it got me to thinking about how leaders need counselors, need guides, need advisors to help them in difficult times. But Nathaniel Hawthorne quote from 1860 kind of sums this up. It's very lonesome at the summit, like a man's life when he's climbed to eminence. And that is very much the case. You get to a certain point in your career and there are few other people around who do what you do. I was in that position at Ford being the head of social media. There were very few other corporate social media leads in those early years, at least. And when you get into the C-suite, a lot of times you are at the pinnacle of your particular department or even at the pinnacle of the company. And it is lonesome. And you're looked on by people your employees, maybe even colleagues, people who know you, you're looked on as a something of a hero. And heroes have played a big part in human history. They've been part of our storytelling. Think about the early epic poems like Gilgamesh from the second millennium BC in Sumeria, and the Iliad and the Odyssey in seventh century BC Greece. We've allowed our imaginations to wander, and to live vicariously even through the lives of these fictionalized heroes. These are beings of light and air, invented from tradition. And they usually are doing things that we find ourselves incapable of doing. They succeed where we can't, but they give us hope where there is none. There was a legendary speechwriter 
at General Motors in the 1940s and 50s. His name was Edgar W. Smith. He was also the first editor of the Baker Street Journal, which is a literary journal for devotees of Sherlock Holmes. And he wrote this in his first editorial. He stands before us as a symbol, a symbol, if you please, of all that we are not, but would ever be. His figure is sufficiently remote to make our secret aspirations for transference seem unshameful, yet close enough to give them plausibility. We see him as the fine expression of our urge to trample evil and set aright the wrongs with which the world is plagued. He is Galahad and Socrates, bringing high adventure to our dull existences and calm judicial logic to our biased minds. He is the success of all our failures, the bold escape from our imprisonment. And isn't this something that we do with most heroes in history and literature? We admire their courage. We stand in awe of their wisdom, their ability to dole out justice. We celebrate their resilience. We wonder, what if we could be like them, or at least some part of them, even if it's just for a moment? And we realize it's a fleeting and fanciful thought, but we return to these stories again and again, because I think we find comfort in them. Kind of like putting on an old sweater. It's pulled on with the ease of muscle memory, and it warms our hearts. And the thing about our heroes that's interesting to me is they can be both distant but relatable at the same time. Their special powers or the situation that we find them in, well, that may be unrealistic. But if we look closely, we find glimpses of humanity, perhaps even foibles and flaws that give us hope that one day we might improve our own situation. And these brief snatches of their fallibility, I think these are gifts that are bestowed on us. And typically, they're brought to us by virtue of who the hero had with them people that played an important but understated role in their lives. I'm talking about their sidekicks. Well, perhaps sidekick is an imperfect word to represent the role. Sidekick is really considered something of an inferior or a hanger-on, a, a buddy or a buffoon rather than an equal. Let's go back to Sherlock Holmes. Of course, you know his alter ego in Dr. Watson. Not really an alter ego, but his quote-unquote sidekick, as we've been calling them. And in the 1940s, Nigel Bruce played Dr. Watson in 14 films with Basil Rathbone. But he played him as, well, as some people have called him, a Bubis Britannicus. He took the role of a medical man, a respected medical man, and turned him into something of an airhead. Now, we can't really say that Sherlock Holmes was 
warm-hearted. And when you combine his curt manner with his extreme intelligence, well, there's going to be a, a sharp distinction between him and his colleague, Dr. Watson. And over the course of his literary career, he managed to utter some backhanded compliments. But at the same time, he ended up calling Watson his friend and colleague. And he elevated his flatmate and biographer to colleague status, therefore conferring upon him a more significant role than just sidekick. In fact, he told Watson at one point, you may not be yourself luminous, but you are a conductor of light. It's one of those backhanded compliments. But he offered Sherlock Holmes something that Holmes couldn't get himself. He was an advisor of sorts, uh, a muse. And advisors really help keep us grounded. They are a sounding board, listening as leaders bounce theories off of them, maybe thinks out loud. Trusted advisors provide counsel, keep leaders on a path, hopefully connecting their vision to their execution. And they're a source of encouragement and commiseration when a leader doesn't have equals in an organization to turn to, as I was talking about before. Let's talk about four different roles that an advisor might play in a leader's life. Number one, they keep us focused. Sherlock Holmes knew he had a powerful ally in Dr. Watson. He wasn't only his biographer, a.k.a. his public relations man, but he added a perspective that Holmes himself couldn't appreciate by himself. From a storytelling perspective, Arthur Conan Doyle gave us this narrator to whom we can relate. We admire Holmes's powers, but we identify with Watson's voice. Number two, Advisors remind us of the importance of establishing, developing, and maintaining relationships. Sherlock Holmes said he was lost without his Boswell, referring to Watson. Of course, Boswell, James Boswell, was the famous biographer of Samuel Johnson, who was a lexicographer, a writer, a distinguished man of letters. He, he contributed to the formation of the Oxford English Dictionary. And he was odd to some people, and he was heavily focused on his work, but he realized the power of relationships, and his friendship with Boswell was essential for having his story told more widely. As a matter of fact, Johnson once said, if a man does not make new acquaintance as he advances through life, he'll soon find himself alone. A man, sir, should keep his friendship in constant repair. Number three, advisors help keep our egos in check. Let's talk about another literary influence, the vivacious and idealistic Don Quixote. He was perfectly complimented with another everyman, Sancho Panza. This humble squire kept is Don rooted in practicality, making his point with his humor and 
proverbs and his wit. And at times, consider it. We all need to be reminded that humility is an endearing and powerful attribute in leaders. And Cervantes had this to say, Modesty is a virtue not often found among poets, for almost every one of them thinks himself the greatest in the world, keeping us humble indeed. Number four, advisors teach us to be patient teachers, lifelong students, and servant leaders. Let's turn to Daniel Defoe. When Robinson Crusoe was stranded on that isolated island, he thought he had everything he needed. He had shelter, supplies, food, water. But over time, he came to realize that he missed companionship. And he ultimately met a savage who had also been stranded. He gave him the name Friday. and began to teach him the English language and hunting skills, among other things. It took weeks and months to make headway, but he stuck with it. At the same time, Robinson Crusoe realized that Friday had much to teach him as well. He learned everything he could from his newfound companion. Topography, culture, even his backstory. And Crusoe was, of course, white, but he realized that even though that was his station in the world, which, let's face it, in the 1700s, had certain connotations. Even though that was his station, he grew to accept that he could serve Friday as much as Friday could serve him. And a quote from there is, I'd, so, I, I'd been so near obtaining what I so earnestly longed for, somebody to speak to and to learn some knowledge from them. Heroes get most of the attention, but their companions fill the roles that make them essential, not only to the heroes, but to us as well. Their confidants, their advisors, their scribes, uh, consciences, their colleagues, and perhaps even consigliaries. And to those around them, they're storytellers. They translate the action of leaders to lessons that we can take to heart. But they don't just show up on your doorstep, arrive through a cold call or an email. The best advisors, the ones that are worth every penny, are those whom you trust. A trusted advisor is the one you'd call with any concern, even at 2 o'clock in the morning. A trusted advisor is one who isn't afraid to tell you you're wrong. The trusted advisor is the last person in the room before you make that important decision. Every leader needs a trusted advisor. Okay, this is where we take your questions or comments. And you're kind enough to write in here at timelesspod at scottmonty.com. Just remember that email address, timelesspod at scottmonty.com. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you have feedback, please send them in there. 
or as a comment in the Substack entry for this episode. In this case, we've got a question from Marissa, who uh, looks like she was just made a manager for the first time. She says, I was promoted to my first management position where I've gone from being an individual contributor to a leading, uh, to, excuse me, to leading a team of five people. What's the most important thing I should get right? Well, Marissa, that is, uh, first of all, congratulations. It's great to hear that. Um, and, you know, when, when you do become a manager for the first time, it's an opportunity to make a first impression, to kind of stamp your uh, culture, your style on the rest of the team. Um, and I, I think it's uh, probably most important if you're going from individual contributor to manager, first thing you want to understand is the power of delegation. You know, uh, this is, as, as we think about Washington in the last episode, George Washington and his ability to put a team together, it's really important that you realize that you are not in this alone. And like we've been talking about your, uh, your advisors, your uh, conciliaries, you have other people you can lean on well, as a manager, that you have to lean on to get things done. So the first thing you need to understand is how to delegate. And I see so many first-time managers who uh, don't delegate, and and they they just they're so wrapped up in getting the thing right themselves. Um, but the reason you've been promoted, the reason you have been given this position, is so you can thrive and you can do more. Um, design yourself completely out of your old job. You're not an individual contributor anymore. Um, now, this isn't going to happen overnight. You know, you need to work on delegation. I think you, you need to set expectations with your boss. Um, you know, that there may be things that aren't perfect, but your boss needs to know that you're in control. So let her in on your plan. Uh, you know, what, what are the, the, the musts, the, the absolutely essential things that need to be handled well? What kinds of things you'll be testing your team with? Where your boss might expect to see some mistakes here and there. And then how you plan to handle uh, those mistakes and, um, and, and any kind of disconnects within your team. So, and, and what, what I, I'm trying to tell you is you're going to be managing your boss just as much as you're managing your team, right? Yeah, then that's the greatest gift you can give your boss is to manage them, right? That takes one more thing off of their plate. So when you, when you manage your boss, you want to think about solutions that you're bringing to them, not problems, Right? Rather than saying, well, this isn't going to work, say, well, things are going to be difficult, but if we do this instead, we'll have a greater chance of success. That's music to your boss's ears. It shows that you're proactive and that you're solution-oriented. Another thing to think about with your boss is to make requests rather than complaints. Um, you know, don't tell them that, you, you know, you 
You can't keep doing something because you're exhausted. Ask for some time off and let them know that that will help you recharge and come back and contribute even better and ask if those dates work that you're looking to take off. And it positions that same need for a break in a more positive manner. Um, I think, you know, as long as you're openly communicating with your boss, right? Keeping them in the loop. Uh, and that way there are no surprises, right? Because you can't manage a secret. And your boss put you in this position for a reason. They know you're capable. They know you're worth investing in. They want to go to bat for you. So if you shine, they get to take credit for managing you. And that looks good to their boss in turn. Uh, you're, and, you know, you're working as a team, right? So even though you're managing up, you're still part of the same working team. So, and I think you'll know when your boss uh, really respects and admires you, you'll be able to take on more interesting projects under them, um, have one-on-ones with them where you can riff on ideas and they'll make, well, they'll go out of their way really to make sure that you develop as a leader and that gives you more control over where you're going. Um, what else? Let, let's see. Uh, delegation. It, well, I think one of the final things I would tell you with delegation is to to be realistic with yourself. I mean, obviously, you need to set expectations with your boss, with your team, but think about how you're managing yourself. You know, um, as you delegate, what are you going to make time for? What are you going to eliminate? Part of being in a responsible position is saying no to things. So what's wasting your time right now? What's eating up your precious resources that you can't otherwise get done? And ultimately, you've got this team of five people. Um you're going to be getting more work out of them. And if you've got five people that do even 80% as well as you did, five people doing 80% as well, that's still a 400% improvement on your individual contribution. So ultimately, just take this in stride one day at a time. Enlist your boss as a colleague. Communicate openly with them and um, manage yourself really well. Like There's a lot there for you to work with. And of course, we here at Timeless and Timely on the newsletter and uh, Timeless Leadership are here to support you. So feel free to reach out if you run into any difficulties. If you have a question like Marissa, just don't forget, you can email me at timelesspod at scottmonte.com and I will do my best to answer it. Uh, if you would like to remain anonymous, that's okay. Don't have to use your name, um, but uh, send in your conundrum, your management issue, your leadership challenge, and I would be happy to apply my experience and my perspective to it. That's all for us here this week on Timeless Leadership. We'll be back again next week with another interview. And in the meantime, we will have another essay this week. This time it's going to be on the topic of unity and how we need to come together if we're really looking to get things done. Our theme music is called Americana Aspiring. 
by Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Check out Kevin McLeod and his work at incompetech.com. I'm really glad you decided to spend your time with me here, and I hope that this inspires you to inspire others to learn more, dream more, do more, and become more than they already are. That is the true hallmark of a timeless leader. I'm Scott Monty. Thanks, and I'll see you on the internet.